This podcast is presented by the Prince George's County Memorial Library System. Hi, I'm Kelsey. I'm Heather. I'm Dahlia. I'm Hannah. And this is our podcast, These Books Made Me. Today, we're going to be talking about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. Friendly warning as always, if you don't yet know the real name of Sissy's husband, John, this podcast may contain some spoilers. Second warning, this book contains mature topics that we will be discussing, and this episode is rated T for teen. All right, ladies, so let's start this off with what this book means to you. Did you experience this as a child, as an adult? What's your foundation for this book? Well, I read it as a young adult, I think. I don't remember exactly. It was for a class. And honestly, I remembered it only in pieces before I reread it for this episode. I remembered mostly some of the more harrowing scenes. Uh, so it was a bit of discovery to go back and read it as an adult. Um, for me, I read it when I was about nine years old. Um, I really didn't remember a lot of it until this reread. Um, I think I remember just kind of... Um, Francie and Johnny's relationship the most in rereading that I really, it was really enjoyable to reread that father-daughter relationship. So I came to this book also about the same age, Dahlia. I think I was probably around eight when I read it for the first time. Um, you guys can see I have a very much loved first edition copy that's been in my family for as long as I've been around. So this book, I think, really resonated to me for a lot of reasons that we'll talk about going forward. Um, but also it, it has become a, a ritual for me every year. Like I read this book around the holidays every single year. Um, it's one of the books that like reliably can make me cry, which I actually enjoy that experience sometimes. So um, I think it's it's just a really meaningful piece of literature in my life and has been since I was a little kid. I have never read this book before this week when I read it for our podcast. So I'm coming into it with grown up eyes. And I'm sure that's a, well, we've already kind of chatted off off pod that it's been quite a different experience for me, I think, than for everyone else. But um, I did really enjoy the experience of reading it. And now here's a summary of the book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is a coming of age story of Francie Nolan, an 11 year old girl growing up in the hard scrabble slums of Williamsburg, Brooklyn in the early 1900s. Francie's father, Johnny, is a charismatic alcoholic who struggles to maintain employment. Her mother, Katie, toils as a janitor to keep her family afloat. The book chronicles the Nolan's family's life from Katie and Johnny's courtship through Francie and Neely's childhood and young adulthood. Moments both big and small from Francie's life illustrate the struggle of a second-generation American and her family's attempts to lift themselves from the hard grind of poverty. Francie is bookish and observant and fiercely desires an education. Francie's life is filled with the influences of her mother, her aunts, especially her aunt Sissy, and her grandmother. She and her family persevere through hardship and trauma. The tree, referenced in the title of the book, grows in the sidewalk near the Nolan's home, carrying on even after being burned. It symbolizes not just the strength of Francie, but that of her whole family. So I was going to give a brief author bio, and it seems worth noting that um, here, since the uh, novel A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is, seems to be semi-autobiographical, even though it's uh, fiction, Betty Smith's life really resembles Francie Nolan's life a good deal. Betty Smith was born Elizabeth Lillian Wainer on December 15th. 1896, uh, five years before Francie Nolan. 
Um, she was born in Brooklyn, New York City to Catherine Hummel and John Wayner. Her father, John, died when Betty slash Elizabeth was still just a child and Catherine remarried to a man named Michael, and I'm not sure if it's pronounced Keo or Keogh, so I'm guessing, <laughs> but it's it's spelled K-E-O-G-H. Um, Betty had a younger brother, William, and a younger sister, Regina. Her parents were both German immigrants, and Betty was not of Irish extraction, as is sometimes reported. This, uh, mis- this mistake may stem from the fact that her stepfather was Irish. Some sources report that her brother and sister took Keo or Keo as their last name, but Betty did not, as she was older. Another source said that she did take Keo or Keo as her last name, so I'm not really sure where the truth lies there. It is a little bit difficult to accurately suss out some of the details of Betty Smith's life as the life of her character in um, you know, her character, Francie Nolan, seems to have blurred a little bit with Betty Smith's actual life in the popular imagination. However, uh, there are some things that we can be pretty certain of, like the protagonist of the book she is most known for. Betty grew up in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and shared a December 15th birthday with Francie. Like Francie, Betty was forced to quit school after eighth grade so she could help support her impoverished family. She would not obtain a high school or a college education despite her affinity for writing. However, she did enroll in writing classes later on in life at the University of Michigan, where her husband, George H.E. Smith, attended law school. Although she did not receive a degree, she did in 1931 win the university's Avery Hopwood Award and $1,000 as a prize for her play, Francie Nolan. Betty and George then moved to New Haven, Connecticut. Betty continued to work on writing plays, this time at the Yale School of Drama. They next moved to Detroit, where Betty continued to write. Betty and George divorced in 1938. They had two children together, Nancy and Mary. In 1942, Betty submitted a manuscript in progress to a Harper and Brothers writing contest and, uh, based on editor feedback, submitted it for publication as A Tree Grows in Brooklyn in 1943. The novel was a resounding success and sold many copies, changing Betty's life forever. It was adapted into a movie in 1945 and a musical in 1951. Betty Smith wrote three more novels after A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Tomorrow Will Be Better, 1948, Maggie Now, 1958, and Joy in the Morning, 1963. She married twice more to newspaperman Joseph Piper Jones in 1943 and later to Robert Finch in 1957. He died two years later. In her later years, Betty taught creative writing at the University of North Carolina. She died on January 17, 1972, at age 75 after becoming ill with pneumonia. And now it's time for your favorite segment, where each episode our intrepid researcher will enchant us with scintillating factoids related to our book. It's time to dive in and explore Ella's ephemera. Hi there, everyone. I'm Ella, and this is my ephemera, the part of the podcast where I tell you about some of the neat things I've learned while doing research. Today, I want to tell you about ASEs, or Armed Services Editions. ASEs were small paperback books of fiction and nonfiction that were distributed in the American military during World War II. Molly Gupton Manning describes them in her book, When Books Went to War, as, quote, miniature paperback books that were small enough that they could fit in a pocket. They're about the size of a smartphone, and the paper that they were printed was about the strength of newsprint. But Why am I telling you about throwaway paperbacks from the 1940s? Well, 
A Tree Grows in Brooklyn was actually one of the most popular Armed Services Edition books shipped during that time period. The author stated that she received 10 times more fan mail from soldiers than she did from civilians, and most of the letters said that reading the book felt like reading about home. Smith estimated that she received four letters a day from servicemen who thanked her for reminding them of home and told her that her book served as a powerful reminder of why they were fighting. The original publication printed about 50,000 copies, but was quickly reprinted as part of a later series because demand was so high. Thanks for joining me on this deep dive. I'm Ella, and this was my ephemera. Okay, so let's kick off our discussion, ladies. How did this book hold up? Looking at this with a modern lens, do we still consider it a classic? Are there issues with it? What do you guys think? There's, it's such a big book. There's so much to dive into. I mean, one of the biggest things that stood out for me and that I, that I think about when I think about how it actually held up is, you know, thinking about how it handles race and, you know, different cultures. And um, what I think is so interesting about this book is that I think she very intentionally wants to talk about race and um, different cultures in the book and very clearly has a message that we should be more accepting and inclusive of people. But at the same time, she has some really off and not so great portrayals of certain people and also some portrayals that were questionable, like I wasn't sure how to handle them. Um, So I think it's a little interesting that it's set in the early 1900s when um, your country of origin was a much bigger deal when you were coming from an immigrant from a European country. There were much more obvious distinctions between being Irish, being Italian, being Polish um, than there are today. And I think, you know, now we would pretty much code all of those folks as white um, and we're much more disconnected from that, you know, immigration status. But I think she spends a lot of time talking about and unpacking the ways in which people had stereotypes and biases against each other um, due to their country of origin. And I think that was really well done and really interesting and added a lot of nuance to, you know, any reader's understanding about why do we think this way about different people? How can we be more open minded? Yeah, like I said, I feel like, you know, there's not great portrayals of Asian people in this book. The way that Jewish people are talked about, I think was intended to be inclusive, but I'm not clear on if it if the language used was actually like it felt a kind of othering in an attempt to be inclusive. So, yeah, I don't know. Murky feelings about this, I feel like. No, yeah, I agree. Especially when it comes to how they talk about Jewish people. I I think, and I know we had talked about this a little bit too, it's just how everything is like the Jew market and like, you know, the Jew baker. And today we would say Jewish. So that's like a big a big thing of how we're, we're kind of deciphering. Well, is it offensive? Is it just the language that was used? You know, it, is it really up to us to... <laughs> To say, is it okay or is is it not okay? And especially with, like you had to Kelsey, the depiction of the Asian characters and how like even she wore the mask and it wasn't necessarily in a positive light. Um, and even the way she spoke about, you know, the Asian gentleman. It, just now, I don't think we would use, <laughs> use the same language. It's a little bit tricky reading it and trying to see how does it hold up to today with that language used. I agree with everything you both said. I thought that she tried really hard to portray things richly and I think she was attempting to be inclusive, like you were saying, Kelsey, but I found the like the language that was used, you know, with, with other people in the book, like the people of Asian descent or the Jewish people really jarring to read. It was it was hard to, you know, it kind of threw me out of the book. I had to stop and think, OK, you know, I'm trying to think about it, you know, and it's and uh, it's time. But it definitely made me want to do more research and um, into like the language. And it, w- it was hard to get through some of the things that uh, she was that she was writing. Yeah. And I think that it's really important 
to consider sort of context for this one. Um, you know, we're, we're going back a lot farther in history than we have um, with, say, Harriet the Spy, which we covered last week. And I think it's probably being written in 43 was pretty progressive, right? I think that at least for me reading it, the take home is that the othering and the stereotyping is negative. And we see Francie pushing back against that in a lot of ways, particularly with some of the Jewish characters in the book. Um, you know, she talks about how beautiful Jewish women are when they're pregnant and the pride that they walk with. And, and she aspires to that mm-hmm. and then sort of denigrates herself in saying that like, well, you know, when the women she knows, like in her tenement are pregnant, they, they know that they're just producing another Mick, which is a derogatory term for, for Irish Americans at the time. So I think that she does seem to, if we view Francie as sort of her avatar in the book, she seems to be trying to push against, you know, the language that's being used, you know, the, the boys picking on the Jewish child on the street. There's the instance where she's asking for the pickle and there's that sort of negative use of language there. And Betty Smith points out that Francie doesn't realize that it's even a bad word to her. It's something that she, you know, just uh, has infused with the joy she feels of getting a pickle at this particular establishment. And so I think there's some interesting play going on, at least in terms of the commentary that's sort of seeping in through Francie's growth in the book. Um, but yeah, it is. It's jarring, you know, for us now, I think, to read something that is full of basically ethnic slurs, even if that's authentic to the time. So yeah, that's a that's a tough, a tough bit. Um, I do think that the context is really important, though. And so I think that's been something that we talked about a little bit too. you know, the historical context and framework in which we read the book and like, how much of that do you need going in for this book to make sense to stand up? What do you guys think about that? Do you feel like you need to come to the book with a lot of like understanding of the time period or not so much? I mean, I think she does a lot of showing like in the details. Like it, I don't feel overwhelmed with exposition about, well, these how this is how things were and this is how you did this. Like I feel like you we get so many detailed descriptions of going about your day and obtaining food and paying bills and, you know, the details of like, you know, using the gas for heat that I mean it's hard to say, like, uh, what do you need for that to make sense to you? But I think she really drops you into the world and you get a very strong sense of place and can maybe glean from the text what she's saying a lot of the time. Yeah, I think she paints a, a really vivid picture of the time. It's just when language comes into play, I think it, it could help to know that's how they spoke back then. Um, not even rather that's how they spoke back then, but those are just common terms and common things that even though we look at them as being like, wow, that's like jarring for me to read back then. It, you know, it was like a common thing that they would, you know, yell to each other across the street and not talking even about just the um, racial terms, just day-to-day terms that they would use that we not, might not even be used to um, or might not have ever heard before. Um, so I think Maybe for certain readers who aren't used to books like this in this historical setting, it could be useful. Um, and I think when it comes to the racial terms, I think then it would also be useful just to kind of have that background on that time in America. Yeah. And I wonder, too, I mean, Hannah pointed out in her sort of background on the author, 
you know, we, we think so much of this as her lived experience in a lot of ways, um, you know, to greater or lesser degree. She grew up in Williamsburg. She was very much in sort of the same boat, even if maybe the specifics weren't the same. She's of German stock, Francie's of Irish Austrian stock. But how much does it change sort of how we look at the book if we consider it as a piece of history or a historical piece rather than considering it historical fiction? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the question for me is like a, a, a work of historical fiction to me is intending to teach you about that time and provides context for you within the text that helps you under make sense of something or understand something or get something. Whereas I really think, I mean, Betty Smith did write this a little bit more removed from that time period than like, it's not like she wrote it like the year after all of this happened, but I don't think she was writing it to say like, here's how to understand that world of the 1900s where everything was so different. I really think it felt, it felt to me like she was like, this is just what life is like. And some things have changed, but like a lot of these things are still the same and we all lived through it. So we all know this is what happened. And so I think that's where I wonder if like someone reading it today who doesn't understand or doesn't know about the history of immigration in this country, like doesn't know that so many people were coming in at that time and like how people lived and how there were these biases as people were much closer to their country of origin than we may be now. Like, I wonder if that would be confusing, but I, I, I am now just, just now thinking about there's the one scene in the book where she is in school and her teacher asks, you know, um, like, what are you? Like, what are you? And she says, I'm American. And the teacher is like really pushing her. And she says, no, my parents were born in Brooklyn. And that was like, whoa, like, and that was like very novel to the teacher that like anyone would have parents actually born in America. I definitely think it's a book of like a historical piece, not a historical fiction piece. But I think there are kind of those clues accidentally sprinkled in that help make that context for you. I mean, uh, I'm reminded um, by this, you know, this type of conversation in my research about the author, it came up that she, um, when she submitted it originally, and we're told that she should publish as a novel, she submitted it more as like a long manuscript that was more, I think it was meant to be more nonfiction. So, I mean, you know, what's, what's memoir and what's historical fiction? I think she must, she must have gone back and said, okay, what can I, I'm imagining her changing things to, okay, all right, this is, this is my story, but I'm also crafting into a, a work of fiction. So I'm changing some details without getting rid of the deep truth. I think she was drawn to convey. So I'm not quite sure how to categorize it. I mean, it, it feels very, feels both like historical fiction and also, you know, like a, a you know, an autobiography. Well, I was also doing some research on the the time period and how true to life that would have been. So I wanted to give you guys a couple of quotes that I found from a historian, Kirby Miller, who is uh, one of the authorities on the Irish immigrant experience in the United States. And then maybe you guys can give me your take on how well that came through in the book. Um, he said that for working class Irish Americans, acute anxiety and severe deprivation were still things endured rather than remembered. And he characterized American born Irish as having a sense of homesickness and exile that was pervasive. And then another quote, accounts of Irish slum life in New York City revealed societies ravaged by chronic unemployment, alcoholism and disease. And I think for me, those get told or shown rather, I guess this is more of a showing rather than a telling book. Um, you know, it is those little details, but I think that's something that at least that picture came through. 
for me in reading the book. So like on that level, I felt like I could definitely see that it would be more memoir than, you know, a true fictional work. Like it's very infused with the author, it seems like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, Is it instructive about the time period? I do feel like I felt like I was part of that. Like I felt very much like in that neighborhood in that time. But I think well, I think it's interesting because I don't know that it's instructive about the time period. I think it's instructive about that place in that time period very specifically. I don't know if that's different, but it feels different to me. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm thinking of it in the context that we often read books like The Diary of Anne Frank or we read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom as well, we give them to kids at a certain age and say, this is a good way to learn about the Holocaust. Um, this is a good way to learn about the World War II time period. Is this the sort of thing we would give to a child to say, hey, this is what what you might take about Depression era New York via fiction rather than a history book? I don't know. I don't know if it's broad enough to just because it is really specific to this European immigration in uh, the early 1900s in, in New York. So I feel like. If we want to talk about New York specifically, then yes. But if we want to talk about all of America during this period, I think you'd have to choose another book, maybe. But for just Depression Era New York, I think it it would paint a good picture. Um, it's definitely not a light read. It, it really does go deeply into, you know, poverty, how alcoholism impacts that, um, you know, how the Irish ancestry, how that, you know, also impacts the alcoholism and um and I think just going back to um, the language, how we were talking about, I think it also shows the specific language that they used, you know, um, in New York at that time. So, yeah, I don't know if it's broad enough to just to specifically be about just the Depression era. I think, too, like the language that they use within the context of the story, like I completely agree with your assessment, Heather. I think I think Francie feels those those times when people are being offensive or insensitive to one another, hurtful to one another and reacts to them and processes them. And like we as the reader have a moment to be like, oh, they are discriminating against one another and that's not okay. So I, I think that is a learning experience for a child. And I think that is like, if I was giving this to a young reader, like, I think that they, that is the kind of empathy building that we want literature to do. So I think, I'm not necessarily concerned about them seeing like harmful stereotypes or language in those contexts, because I think those kinds of situations, like that's where you should be reading it and seeing it and being like, oh, words have an impact or the, my actions have an impact. What worries me is things like we talked about with the Asian portrayals or there's some Native American references that like are kind of like we talked about in our previous episode, like just part of the casual language that like I don't think Betty Smith realized could be offensive because no one's really talking about racism against, at least in white communities, racism against native people or Chinese people. And those kinds of things are always what worries me a little bit because they're not reacted to and they're not addressed because no one really thought it was an issue. So like when she wears the mask, right? Like those are the kinds of things that I kind of worry about. And like, if I, I think that this book has a lot of nuance and a lot of conversation that I think would be worth a child reading and unpacking and understanding. But I think I would need to provide like a, like a content warning to say, Hey, like these things are in here too. And they're not okay. And like, they, they didn't really like at this time, people weren't really thinking about that. But today we need to be aware that like, you can't wear someone's race as a costume. 
and you can't like go around like chanting like tribe things about people who aren't Native American and like assume that that's okay. Like the politician, I don't know what was going on with that. So like, I think, I think that's what always makes me a little uncomfortable with books like that especially with younger readers who don't have the context have already been like, okay, no, that's not okay. And that's not like, or if I am like a Chinese child reading this book and seeing like, oh, they wore a yellow mask to be me. Like that's like, people are allowed to do that. Like that's what, that's what worries me a little bit with all of these books as we look back on them. I keep almost wanting to see like an annotated version, which I don't know. Like I know that they published annotated versions of like classic texts, like, Sherlock Holmes or Pride and Prejudice. And I don't know, I don't know how much that detracts from like the flow of reading a book. But like you were saying, there are some things where like, they're sort of examined at least partially, um, you know, in in the text. And then there are the moments that are just, you know, casual moments of things that maybe needed to be examined, but just aren't on the, they, I guess they weren't on Betty Smith's uh, radar as we need to like, you know, note this and have thoughts about it, you know. Almost makes me think, you know, like giving this to to someone, it, it feels like it should come with, if not an annotation, a conversation at least about certain parts. But how do you do that in a way that doesn't detract from, like, you know, the joy of just sitting and reading a book, you know, privately all the way through uh, without um, if that stopping to like look up historical details that maybe aren't what you know the reader wants to do at that moment? Yeah, I think one thing with this, as I'm kind of thinking, is. Francie is such a sensitive, smart young girl that as you read through the situations, either that she witnesses or that she's in herself, you usually get this in her mind kind of thought process of that's not fair. That's not right. But then like when you get to the mask situation, she doesn't know. And it's not that she's doing it purposely to necessarily offend someone. It's like, like you said, Kelsey, they weren't talking about that back then. And I think if you were to give this to a child, I think I think it could be good for them to read it. But I think there definitely, like you said, there definitely needs to be a conversation afterwards to say, you know, this is what was done back then, but this is not what we do now. This is not okay. Um, but yeah, I think she was such a sensitive child to certain situations and other people's um, troubles. And she was empathetic that I think in her mind, you get a lot of um, just that's not right type of um, attitude where she wants to make things right and she wants to to learn and to be better. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to also take a little bit of time to talk about the representations of womanhood in this book. Part of the reason that we were doing this pod was to look at books that resonate with girls or with women. Um, what do we think about this book? Is it feminist? Is it uh, a strong book in terms of the depiction of women in the book? I think it's super feminist. I think there is such a wide range of like what it means to be a woman, especially if, even if you just look at the three sisters, right? So you have Katie, who's like this kind of strong, like I, I'm, I've got everything under control and I don't need anyone, like kind of all three sisters like this, but especially Katie, like whatever happens, I'll deal with it. I'll figure it out. Not only that, but I'm going to create this like rich, full, joyful life for my kids, even while we're struggling under poverty, like you have that kind of representation. You have Sissy, who's very much like my body, my rules. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to have relationships with whatever many men I want. I don't care if, about marriage or divorce. Like I'm going to like, I want a kid and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make that happen. And no one really judges her for it. Like there are some like side comments, but like in the grand scheme of things, the message really is like, 
Sissy is cool because she has her own like rule book that she plays by. And then you have Evie, who's kind of like the more traditional, quote unquote, traditional woman, right? Like she's wants to be a wife to Willie. And she kind of like when he she does kind of jump in on when he like uh, loses his job or has the issue with the horse. (laughs) But (laughs) but like she doesn't really want to take over for him. She's just kind of like, all right, I'll fill in and like I'll do it in my own like kind of sensitive woman way. But then when he can come back, like I'm not going to take that spot because I'd rather have a different role. And none of those things are judged. And you see all different kinds of women throughout the book. Um, you know, the girl who, who gets pregnant out of wedlock and like you see how through Francie's eyes, how she's treated and kind of a c- critique of like, why are we judging women for this happening when, you know, um, all of these women have been in different situations. It just wasn't made public. So it's kind of like a critique too of like how women can kind of, and this is a generalization, but like women often can kind of like gang up on one another and kind of create these like cliques or, you know, outcasts each other. Um, and then just another thing that I like too, is like, there's a couple times throughout, like Francie says she doesn't want to be friends with women. And I think Katie Nolan says it too, like it sucks to be friends with women, which is kind of a cliche, but then I appreciate that it kind of comes back around and Francie realizes like, Oh, I was judging these women just the way I saw like other women judge each other. And like all her, she could have had friends the whole time at school had she just kind of opened her mind and not assumed all women are the same or evil or whatever she assumptions she made. So I feel like it was really like a very complicated portrayal of like all the different (laughs) kinds of things that you deal with when you are a woman and you're like navigating the world, like all the different kinds of ways to be and issues you struggle with. I, I really, I thought it was really well done. You mentioned uh, that there was a complexity. And I think for me, that's the complex portrayals of, you know, womanhood throughout the book is what makes it feminist to me, because I mean, they're all strong, like pretty much everyone in this book is strong. They kind of have to be whether or not they want to be, it seems. But, you know, you see, I mean, there's just there's complexity with uh, um, every uh, woman we see in this book close up. And I mean, there's that whole like, you know, oh, we need more strong female characters. It's like, well, okay, sure. But like, you know, for me, complex female characters is far more compelling and important. Strong will be a part of that if you allow for complexity. Yeah, I definitely have to agree. I do think it's a lot more feminist than you might kind of expect, especially going into a novel that is considered a classic. Um, when I was when I was younger and I read it, I I do remember that much of I, I thought it was very like, oh, I like Francie. I really like Francie. Like she, you know, she didn't really care about what others really said. But as an adult reading it, rereading it, I see like, especially Sissy, like you said, Kelsey, like she did not care. Like she got married at 14. She was like, I'm going to have this baby. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to have a baby. She, you know, um, when she wasn't able to get divorced because, um, of the Catholic faith, she was like, okay, I'm going to go and still give me another husband. Like she and, just went straight to bigamy. <laughs> she was like, okay, this is fine. This is wild. She's <laughs> working at a condom factory. She's like multi-time bigamist. She is, you know, queen of the day. Babies informally <laughs> off the street. Like she, she's kind of awesome. Yeah. yeah. She's like, <laughs> go get it, sissy. Like the ultimate like female character uh, in this book. And, you know, even Katie, um, her sister would make little comments about her say, oh, you shouldn't tell Francie this and that. And then Katie would catch herself and, and even say, how can I judge her? And she's done so much for us and she's helped us so much. And she's 
doing so much in her life. Like even she had to stop herself um, from judging her own sister. And I never heard their mother ever say anything about negative about them. They just were these strong women who would do whatever they needed for their families and wanted to make sure that their children had the best possible lives. And they never let men, um, you know, stop them from that. And they never really let anybody tell them no. And if someone told them no, they would just find out another way to do it so they could provide for their families and for themselves. I just like love the sheer confidence of Sissy just being like, yes, I'm pregnant when everyone was like, you're not, you're not pregnant. She's like, no, yeah, I, I, I am pregnant. Like, and just committing to the story to the point that everyone else was like, okay, you're pregnant. Like, Yeah. Everyone just went along with it. Cause she's like, I'm carrying in the back. Yeah. <laughs> like, or her mom said, I'm, she's carrying it in her head. It's enough room. And then her husband yeah. just throws up her hands and is like, yeah, all right. Steve sure. gave up. Yeah. He was just like, okay. Um, and I liked that too, because you know, in some ways, we have Sissy presented as sort of the the femme fatale of the book, right? She always has a guy on the go, but she doesn't need a man, right? Like, and and she seems really aware of that, right? And I think so. She just kind of discards guys right and left until the end, and then she finally finds a guy that's like able to keep up with her, and then she's like, "Okay, yeah, you're on my level. I'm gonna actually make this work now." Um, which I, I think is an interesting twist to it. Again, she's not one note at all. But like even some of the the side characters or the women that aren't fleshed out as much, like Grandma Romilly, you know, she's presented as incredibly strong, right? Like she's made it through this very abusive sounding marriage and has been much beleaguered, but she's instilled in all of her daughters this wonderful sense of survival these, you know, strong sort of imperatives to like get education for yourself, you know, do better than me. I can't read, but your children must be able to read, read the Bible, read Shakespeare to them every night, save money, buy land. Like she's really, really imparted this wisdom to them that works ultimately. Like that is the saving grace for the Nolans. How many times that they've had the star bank and they've put aside and put aside and Katie goes without and goes without to put that extra penny in the cup. And I think that showing that spectrum, yeah, I think it is really a very compelling piece of feminist literature in a lot of ways, because basically every woman that's presented, you know, more than just in passing, like even the side characters, Flossie, Gaddis as well, you know, they feel so real and they, they feel like real people and fully realized women and very different from each other, very distinct, but, you know, just a lot of nuance there, a lot of heart. It shows a lot of ways to be a woman Yeah. in a time where probably there was a lot of, I guess, pushback on different ways to be a woman. You know, I think it was more of a one note kind of thing that was the, that came through in a lot of things. Yeah. I think that's what impressed me the most is like thinking about when this was written and seeing how much acceptance and love there is for all these different representations of women, I I don't think that I would have expected it to be quite as like truly loving of all these different women in all these different ways. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Delia. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say real, real quickly, uh, um, you were talking about the Romilly woman. I'm reminded of when Johnny was telling Katie, he's like, you Romilly women, you're too deep for me. <laughs> no, yeah. When you brought up um, the grandmother, 
kind of what I felt was like a very quiet feminist moment was when she made sure that her daughters could not speak German so they could not speak to their father um, because she knew if they did, he would have convinced them to never get married, to stay at home and to always give him their money. And I think, you know, she knew that. And she was like, no, my girls will, will speak English. They're not going to talk to their father. He's not going to trap them at home. They're going to live their own lives. They're going to work for themselves. And I think that was really kind of showed just the true strength of the Romilly women was just the mother in the beginning being like, my girls are going to be my girls. They're going to live their lives however they like. Yeah. It's, it's her protecting them from him. And it's sort of all of those steps along the way, you see that happening. Then Katie's sort of trying to protect the kids from Johnny as well by sort of reframing it as he's sick. He's not an alcoholic. He's, you know, he's doing his best. Um, and then, I think one of the themes that sort of carries through is that you read the book and initially you're you're like, oh, you know, Francie, her relationships with her dad, like that's the bond. But ultimately, Francie's a Romilly woman, 100 yeah. percent. She's got that same steel that her mom and her aunts and her grandmother all have. It comes out in different ways. You know, not everybody is Katie shooting the child molester in the hall, but it's that fierce, you know, protection of your loved ones. It's the sort of having that romantic streak, even if occasionally it gets you into trouble. It's Francie falling for Lee, like Katie fell for Johnny, even knowing eh, this is a mistake, but then being able to make the best of that situation. Um, I think, yeah, it's a really compelling look at womanhood. I mean, that's really what the book is. It's a book about women. Yeah. Yeah, I just I just have to say I love Katie Nolan so much. Like she's like now one of my favorite characters in literature. Like I just admired her so much because the situation that they are in, I would not blame any single person for just becoming bitter and angry, right? Like she yes, Johnny is like a very charming dude, but like lets her lets her down time and time again. She has to like work backbreaking hours from day to night to do just keep their family like having like a piece of bread at night. And like, not only does she like not ever become bitter, but like she truly does try to keep like the joy and like the pleasant moments of life present in their life. Like she lets Kate or Francie have her weekly cup of coffee that she just sniffs and pours down the drain. And like, that's, you're like, you're allowed to have some luxuries in your life. You don't have to like drink every last drop just because, you know, we couldn't afford it. Like, and I just think, I just like really loved her so much. <laughs> and um, yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, she's wonderful. I And I wanted the best for her in her new marriage. I'm like, finally, she's going to get a break. Because yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's frustrating at times. And you can feel sort of that Francie's irritated with her for not being kinder to Johnny. And it's like her hands are rubbed raw while he's occasionally being a singing waiter. Is that a thing anymore? I wish it was. I've never seen a singing waiter, but apparently it was enough of a thing that they had a union for them. So like, I kind of am like, does this exist somewhere? And yeah, I want to know that too. It the, ended the with waiter. Johnny. <laughs> Johnny was the last singing He's waiter last ever. End of the line. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I think the last thing that we wanted to talk about is, would we give this book to a child today? If so, which child? Well, I'll start by saying I did give this book to my children. Um, 
you know, just like my mom gave it to me. And um, I read it very young. Uh, and I, I think every time I've reread it, I've taken more from it. And it's, you know, it's a very fluid and sort of organic book for me in the way that good literature should be, I think. I feel pretty comfortable giving it to a kid, um, particularly if we're talking about a child that's Francie's age or older. Um, it would have to be the right kid. Yeah. You know, it's a big book. It's, you know, it's a Bildungsroman about, you know, depression era Brooklyn. That's not going to be the right sweet spot for every single kid. But I, I have given it to kids in the library before that I thought they were that kid and I feel like it's hit well for them. So how do you guys feel about that? After much deliberation, <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to say yes, because I read it at nine. Granted, I was reading a lot of different types of books that most nine-year-olds aren't reading. Um, but in this day and age, I think kids are going to read whatever they want to read. And they're going to read so much that their parents might not know about that it's worth that they would read this. That's actually going to be good for them, hopefully. Um, I think mostly more young girls are going to be drawn to this rather than young boys. I think any any child can read this. I'm definitely not putting a gender on it, but I do think most younger girls are going to be more drawn to it because it's about the coming of age of a young girl. But yeah, I think I think this is definitely okay for a child to read. But again, a child that's used to reading books in this historical context and books that are this long. Um, but as long as they're good with that, then yeah, I think it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I... I think <laughs> so I was a, I think I kind of raised this this question right because I did not read this as a child and reading it as an adult I was like okay first of all we spent a lot of time in the head of adults who like I don't I I just for some reason don't feel like most kids like are interested in that like it's pretty rare for a children's book to spend that much time focusing on adult problems and I definitely and I think all of us were kids who read like way outside of our like what was prescribed for children so like I definitely don't think it's not that I think no kid would be interested in it but like we're kind of saying I don't think it's really a children's book in the same way that like many other children's books are I don't think it's like in the typical line of children's books. It also, I don't want to be prudish, but like has a lot of sex in it. <laughs> and it has a lot of like mature topics that I think, I, I think we've kind of talked about, like probably just go over a kid's head when they're reading it, but like just make me feel like it wasn't written for kids necessarily, even though it's from the perspective of a child. That said, I agree. I think there are definitely kids who, especially like really for me, this book is about the love of reading and the love of learning and writing and like engaging with words. And actually I wanted to just highlight there's like, I was listening to a, a lot of this as an audiobook, and then I'd go back and kind of highlight passages that I loved. And there's um, the start of chapter 22 when Francie first learns how to read is like the most beautiful description I've ever heard of someone learning to read and so eloquently captures. Um, she says, Oh, magic hour when child first knows it can read printed words. And then she describes, you know, Francie had been kind of spelling the words and sounding each letter and kind of chugging, chugging through. And then just one day she looked at the word and it was horse and she just, it was horse. And then all of a sudden the next word was running and it was like the words just like appeared and it was so magical. And like, I just think there's a lot of descriptions like that throughout the book that are like, I could see resonating with a kid, but it's just funny as an adult reading this and being like, this feels like a book for, <laughs> this feels like a book for grownups. So I think that, kind of with some of the context that I described earlier that I would want to just provide before I just handed it over to a, a kid. 
Um, I definitely think like a really uh, a mature, like really voracious reader I could see really loving and getting a lot out of this book. Yeah, I think I I would recommend this, um, I guess, as wearing my librarian hat to, like you said, Kelsey, like a, you know, mature reader. And they, you know, maybe that means they'd be more high school. Maybe it means they'd be a little younger. I think it would depend. I think I'd want to have enough of a relationship with that reader to like have a sense of the fact that it might appeal to them. Um, I feel like I keep thinking as I read this, as I read this book again, that if somebody you know, loved historical fiction and they loved, they were really hungry for historical fiction and or classics. Um, I feel like this would be a really great read alike for um, the Emily of New Moon series, which is like Ellen Montgomery's uh, less well-known series about a writer. Um, I mean, I, I could see, I could see recommending this, um, you know, I think it probably wouldn't come up a lot, but I would recommend it to the right reader. If, uh, if it was someone that I knew in my personal life very well, like, you know, a child of mine or like a, a you know, a, a friend's child who I knew, you know, knew would be interested in the content, would be able to handle it, would be able to have conversations with someone or me about the content. I would, you know, f- feel far more inclined to recommend it to them. So I think, I mean, that's just a long way of saying it depends. But yeah, I would recommend it to the right reader. It's interesting that you brought up the read-alikes. And I think that, you know, we often think of things as sort of a natural like trajectory. Like if a kid liked Little House on the Prairie and the Laurel Ingalls Wilder's books, okay, maybe they also like Anne of Green Gables. This seems to make sense in that sort of lineage. But I was thinking more about going backwards from more contemporary books that kids might enjoy who then would also like this book, you know, and I think of a book like Watson's Go to Birmingham or... Mm -hmm. um, even something like, uh, you know, PSB 11, where there's a work of historical fiction and the kids grasp onto, hey, this is foreign, but I still see myself in this, right? Like this is anachronistic, but that's kind of cool. And those rich details. So I think like other writers who capture history in that way, any of the like Laurie Hulse Anderson books, like those kids, I feel like might like this book as well as a regression almost like the kind of kid that's already primed for yeah I like to sit in another time period and you know even like kids that are into American girls which I think we're gonna probably get to in future episodes like this might hit really well for them because the details are so rich like I think it's just so vibrant the book feels very alive to me so you know to me good writing is good writing to some degree and I feel that that resonates with with kids who love language and who love words like Francie, you know? So it's still, it's still a winner to me. I think that I don't, I don't think I'm going to overthink the recommendation too much in the future. I think I would still hand it to a kid. All right. Well, coming up, we're going to get an expert's take on an important aspect of this novel that is not often discussed, but first we're going to pay some bills. Learn a new language from home or on the go with Mango. Mango's award-winning courses bring you practical phrases from real-life situations in a way that makes you want to start the conversation. Every learner's experience is unique. Mango adjusts to your learning pace, teaching you until you feel confident with new words and phrases, creating a learning solution centered around you. Visit pgcmls.info and click on the online library tab to learn more. Would you like to learn something new while at home? Develop and expand your creativity by learning how to sketch, sew, knit, cook, and more with Creative Bug. All you need is your library card. 
So now let's talk to someone who actually knows something about tenement housing. Hi, Heather. Um, thank you for inviting me. I'm county council member and Prince George's County Valley's chair, Denny Tavares. I represent District 2. And in my capacity as vice chair, I represent the whole county. We are thrilled to have you on the podcast today as we take a deep dive into A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. So in the book, the tenements and neighborhood of Williamsburg, Brooklyn in 1912 come to life almost as a distinct character. Betty Smith offers vivid description of the mix of sounds and smells and colors that are part of the multi-ethnic neighborhood Francie lives in. I know you grew up in New York. Does this description ring true or resonate with how you experienced your neighborhood as a child? Um, well, in reading the caption, um, I would say yes and no. Uh, uh, we we were um, we were really we were not as diverse. We as as the maybe nineteen twenty maybe nineteen twelve Brooklyn. We were basically African Americans and Latinos in where I grew up in Harlem, and um, and I did enjoy the people, the sounds, the music, um, you know, the smells in terms of the great food that came out of all the restaurants. I mean, there is no shortage of good food in New York. Um, at all, even a, even from a hole in the wall. It's like the best food you've ever had. And I just love like the people sitting down playing dominoes, you know, in the middle of um, the islands in the street in, in on Broadway. And but I also grew up. So on that, that's the positive side. Right. But on the on the more negative side, I also grew up in a New York that was also at the height of the crack epidemic and at the height of AIDS. And so we, we, you know, while I saw the children playing, you know, at the water, at the water pumps, at the, you know, at the fire hydrants, and that was a lot of fun, you know, and paying and people playing baseball in the middle of the street. It was also real that we had drug dealers standing almost at every single block in all four corners and and the illicit activity happening in a lot of the crack buildings that primarily that I grew up in, um, you saw the negativity of how that negatively affected communities like mine, the, the abuse and addiction of drugs and how that drove people to do certain things. And you're seeing people shoot up, urinate in buildings, you know, you know, the gun violence that comes with that. And, you know, and so on. And and then you see the tear. I mean, we could talk about the, de the deterioration of, of some of the affordable housing and the boarded up buildings all around us. So it's it was it was both positive and negative. But I mean, for somebody who didn't know better, um, you always were protected in that in that in that sphere if you came from a a solid house where you knew you had somebody there every day at the end of your school day. And so for those that have stable lives, it was a protected environment. You didn't know, like, like people often say, oh, you didn't know you were poor when you grew up because you had everything you needed. You had your three meals. And so 
those are those are the kind of things that you know you kind of you kind of don't sense it and it's only until you step out and you see from outside it that you're like oh wow I survived that it's interesting to hear you say that because I think you know in spite of this book being almost a hundred years before your childhood Francie seems to have that same dichotomy uh, she has this wonderful strong female, set of relatives with her mom and her aunts and her grandmother, but her neighborhood is really struggling with poverty and alcoholism. You know, Francie, mm -hmm. actually, a person tries to assault her at one point and her mother physically has to intervene to protect her. But mm -hmm. at the same time, she has these sort of vivid connections to her community, uh, a very like rich sensory experience of living there and, and being part of her neighborhood, which like you said, the positivity and the negativity, and that's all part of her childhood. Yeah, they're hand in, they're hand, in hand. And it's interesting, uh, you should mention that because I, I mean, I've, I, I remember being in precarious situations. There was like, I remember when I was 12 years old, and I was gonna, I, I mean, I had like my family, I had like at least three or four family members that lived all on the same block in different apartments. So it was just like me jumping to my grandmother, my aunt, going to my cousins, going, you know, it was like, we all lived like in the same neighborhood and even in the same building. <laughs> and and uh, I was walking to, to one of my aunt's places down the street and I remember that I was in like a short T-shirt and shorts. And I remember distinctly this man approaching me, asking me, oh, can I show him where a supermarket was or a, a grocery store, a bodega? And I'm like, if you know New York City, there is a bodega at every single corner. You don't need to go anywhere. And then the, the man was dressed in a fur coat in the summer with, with a with this round tip hat, which anybody who's ever read The Pimp knows this is a pimp. But I had never seen that in my life. I had never encountered that. But I knew my Spidey says came on really quick. This is a man you've got to run away from and you got to get away because this man came to hunt, you know. And so, and so I was streetwise enough to protect myself from that kind of incident or or incidents where you you sense that somebody was trying to do you harm, you know, sexually molest you or something to that nature. Even from trust, even from trusted individuals in the community, and and so in that sense, I was able to always be protective and always, you know, be respectful. But at the same time, no, no, I'm going back home, and that's okay. But thank you, but no. Um, and so, so I was able, but there are some people who, who, you know, who, whose lives were traumatized because they didn't maybe have the same sense of protection or, you know, or awareness of what was going on. And so it's sad, but it's, it is, it's real. Absolutely. Another issue in the book um, that I wanted to talk to you about is public education. So that's a social issue tackled in the book. Francie initially goes to her neighborhood public school, which Smith describes as, quote, 3,000 children crowded into this ugly, brutalizing school that had facilities for only 1,000. Later on, she sees this other school in a more affluent neighborhood and kind of falls in love with this school. She wants to go there. 
Her dad falsifies her address so that she can transfer. Does the neighborhood a child grows up in still have impacts on educational outcomes? And how much progress do you think we've made in the last hundred years in terms of equitable access to education? Now that's a question for you. Asking the big questions here. You are. are, I mean, I can can share with you my experience. Wow. What a great conversation. I could listen to them forever. Couldn't you? Well, you're in luck. We'll be releasing the full discussion as a bonus episode next week. Wait, what's that? You can't wait until then. Click the link in the episode description to check it out early on our blog. Okay, so on to something far more frivolous. We are going to take a BuzzFeed quiz together. And uh, this quiz is called, What Type of Tree Are You? (laughs) All right, so uh, question one, what do you do in your free time? And oh, and I forgot to say, we're going to be taking this um, as if we are Francie. So we can find out what type of tree Francie would be. She is not the tree of heaven for this quiz, I don't think. <laughs> She's going to be a different kind of tree. <laughs> we'll find out at the end of this quiz. Um, okay, so what do you do in your free time? And our choices are sleep, hang out with friends, watch Netflix, or read. This one's a no-brainer, right? (laughs) She's going to read. She did love Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I think we're all in agreement that it would have been read. Next question. Whose music do you enjoy the most? Our choices are Ariana Grande, Harry Styles, Brendan Urie, or Queen? I don't know how to approach this question for Francie. So I'm going to say that Francie loved Johnny's music, so we should find the person who was... The most similar to Johnny in style. Mm. And I would go with Harry Styles for that as being more of a like, okay, he can do ballads and stuff. Somehow I don't see Francie as a big like Panic at the Disco fan. No, I, I don't think Brennan Urie's going to be the one. <laughs> I, I was I was leaning a little towards Queen, just but maybe that's just because they're like the oldest group on the list. <laughs> but was- like, I kind of do like the, the Harry Styles thing because I he has some like real like jazzy kind of R&B kind of numbers that I could see Johnny doing. Um, so I could, I could lean that way or maybe queen. I could see Harry Styles being a singing waiter. So agree. I, oh. he probably has I, been a singing waiter. Yeah, if that I can, I can see him in that role. So I'm going to say <laughs> Harry Styles. All right. I think we're going Harry Styles. Yeah. I'm going to have to bow to all of your opinion because I couldn't tell you what Harry Styles or Brendan Urie have done. So let's Harry Styles. If it makes you feel any better, I didn't even know who Brendan Urie was until she said back at the desk. Okay. I oh, do feel better. I was like, oh no, I'm the most ignorant one <laughs> in the room here. Yeah, until Heather's Panic at the Disco. Like, oh, okay. Okay, it's that guy. I have heard Panic at the Disco. We had such high hopes for this quiz. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Harry Styles? Yes. Harry Styles. Next question. Oh, dear. I'm going to have to uh, do some describing here because the question is, well, not a question. Choose a hairstyle. And we have four pictures of uh, four different hairstyles, although they're not all as different as maybe they're supposed to be. Our first one is a uh, woman standing in what looks like a forest. She has long, wavy hair down her back. The uh, second one is a, a short semi-stacked dyed red bob. Third is another woman with long wavy hair, but this one standing in a field. And our final choice is a woman with a ball cap on, and she has a slightly longer uh, bob. Mm. 
Didn't she always want a bob and she, she begged her mom for a bob? She, she did. She, bob. she wanted to do the short hair because that was coming into vogue at the time. So, But I don't think she would want like a red bob. Yeah, I think she would have been a little bit more subdued than that. But I also don't think she would wear a baseball cap. Would she? Yeah, I don't mm. think she would either. I think the lob is too long because, like, yeah. we're talking like flapper era. She wanted bob, to have been right? short. Like, yeah. it, it's short. I would go with that, especially since the other two are basically the same lady, just in different places. <laughs> <laughs> lady in a forest, lady in a field. She definitely didn't want long hair. That's no, for sure. she did not. All right, short. So short, short bob. bob. Short bob. All right. What's your favorite color? Choices are yellow, pink, green, and blue. I'm going to say definitely not pink. I don't think she was a pink girl. I agree with you. I agree. I'm leaning towards green because I think, wasn't Johnny's like union, like something was green, his apron, his union I think his button. union pin was, was it green or blue? Oh, I thought it was Ooh, navy. I can't remember. I might be wrong. Katie gets a green hat, right? The hat yeah, that Katie Christmas, gets is moss yeah. green. The moss, the moss green, green yes. yeah. I think green. green. Yeah, Money's green. Me. Money is green. <laughs> Tree of heaven, green. <laughs> Leaves are green, yeah. Mm-hmm. Green, okay. How would your friends describe you? Smart, pretty, basic, or funny? What friends? <laughs> <laughs> Francie is short on friends. (laughs) By friends, we mean how would her family members describe her? How would Neely describe you? How how would Ben describe you? Oh, she does have Ben. She's got Ben. You don't take Ben away from her, Kelsey. (laughs) She sort of has some friends at work, I guess. Eventually, yeah. Yeah, the first job where they make where she's making the flowers. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't talk to her until she left. Is that her? They wouldn't stop making fun of her until they she ah, laughed. Okay. And then right. they kept making fun of her just like it was funny then. <laughs> it was good natured ribbing. I, I mean, mean, she's the smart one, smart, right? I agree. Like, she's definitely smart. Smart. All right. And our last question is uh, we have to pick a photo. Uh, the first photo is it is a book lying open on a table. The second photo is a ladybug on a white background. The third one is a white flower on a bush or a tree. And uh, lastly, we have a bunch of oranges or tangerines, some form of citrus in a bowl. The book is very darkly lit. I just want to add that in because it feels a little ominous. I mean, I'm remembering, uh, I I mean, I feel like the book is the obvious answer here, but I'm also remembering um, like when she was sent to get the oranges. Mm. Was there another orange scene in the book or am I just misremembering? I just remember the one where her mother sent her out and she was giving birth. To get and she said and navel oranges. I think it was. Yeah. And I think the, the implication was that was a time killer to get her out of the mm-hmm. house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Difficult task. I mean, the book is probably. I think the book is the obvious yeah. choice. That's, yeah. yeah. All right. Book it is. Okay. So Francie is a willow. You're a wise old soul. You're probably the parent of your friend group. You give the best advice to other people, but you don't always follow it. Wise old soul fits Francie. I'm not sure about any of the rest of yeah. it. Right? I wouldn't call her the the parent. No. She doesn't have a friend group. Yeah, she say. really doesn't. <laughs> and because Neely was the boy, he was like in charge of the money and everything. So she'd always hand everything to him. So she couldn't be his his mother figure. Uh, and she doesn't really give much advice to anyone either. 
she's very like i mean i think she feel like she gives advice to herself well it's really more like making notes for her future self but yeah that's internal not really to others she's much more about observing than commenting or, mm-hmm. or advising absolutely i think the tree of heaven might fit her a little better than willow she's very resilient and I, I don't think that BuzzFeed did any better than Betty Smith did in the book. I, yeah, I think say. we need to scrap this. And willows do well near water. And I'm remembering when they all went out on the boat and everybody was sunburned and nauseated. <laughs> so maybe <laughs> they don't do yeah, I forgot the like terrible boat trip. <laughs> oh, that was, I felt so bad for everyone. <laughs> okay. So now we're going to go into the Bechdel test. Um, the Bechdel test is just a pretty simple uh, three-question quiz. And I'm just going to go on down the list now and ask you guys questions. So the first question is, does this book have two female characters in it? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> full of women. Uh, two, do they both have names or rather do two or more have names? Also, yes. 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 Mm-hmm. And do they discuss something other than a man? Yes, yes. definitely. For sure. So this is an easy, easy pass. It is an easy pass, I think, because we did we did all pretty much agree that this is a a surprisingly feminist work. And I think that that tracks then with it doing so well on the Bechdel test. Absolutely. All right. So as always, we have some recommendations for books you might love if A Tree Grows in Brooklyn resonated with you. So you can check out our book reviews via the link in the episode notes. And that's it for this episode of These Books Made Me. Join us next time when we'll discuss a book in which a man called Uncle Hammer comes to visit rural Mississippi, among other important moments. If you think you know which book we're tackling next, drop us a tweet. We're at PGCMLS on Twitter and hashtag These Books Made Me. 